0: listeners. Welcome to the 10x Growth Strategies podcast. I'm your host, Aarti Vijayaraghavan, a product leader, an avid reader, and a book lover. Today, we'll be discussing the book Turnaround with the author, Lisa Gable. Lisa has worked in turning around large initiatives, both in the private and the public sector, from addressing obesity by taking out 6.4 trillion calories out of the American diet, Leading the US operations as the US ambassador at the World Expo to obtain foreign direct investment to the U uh, to US. She's also the former ambassador, CEO, UN delegate, Wall, Wall Street, and USA Today best-selling author, too many accolades to count. Uh, she's currently serving as the chairperson of diplomatic careers, futuristic think tank, world in 2050. She's a distinguished fellow at the Hunt Institute of Engineering and Humanities, SMU Lyle School of Engineering. We are honored to have you, Ms. Lisa, to the 10x Growth tra- Strategies podcast. Seriously, well, you know, it's so pleasure to meet you. It is
1: wonderful to be with you again, uh, and so enjoyed meeting you when I was in Austin.
0: Yep. thank you. Thank you. So let's dive in. Let's discuss the book Around with you. So first question, let's start off, uh, you know, what drew you to turnarounds, you know, and change change management in the first place? Let's start from the beginning.
1: Well, I had an opportunity to serve under Ronald Reagan at the Defense Department in the White House and was part of the biggest turnaround experience in the world, which was the fall of the Russian Empire and the and the Cold War's ending. So that was that was a good starting point. Uh, but I was recruited at that time to go to Intel Corporation, and I worked for Craig Barrett, who would later become the CEO and Chairman of the Board of Intel. But he was Senior Vice President of Manufacturing at the time, and I was his troubleshooter. And basically, Craig would have me uh, explore different things in the company that he didn't think were working right. Uh, as he moved into the role of Chief Operating Officer and era parent. Uh, Those ranged from our philanthropic efforts to work that we were doing around export controls to ultimately uh, setting up the Intel identity system to support the Intel inside rollout.
0: Yeah, I know in the book, I think you talk a lot about how uh, your basic learning from Intel helped you through your career. So one of the things which caught me when I read it was, uh, you know, uh, your mentor, Craig, how he asked you to Uh, solve a complex problem uh, you must turn it on its head so can you give some examples from your experience on how you changed, you know in your perspective and uh, how did you go about looking at a problem from a different angle some anecdotes or you know how did you visualize that that will be really good for our listeners Well, one of the things I learned is that you really have to dig into what's the underlying cause of the problem.
1: And sometimes it's not very apparent. And sometimes it's actually based on something that had happened many years before, but it started an unfortunate trend. However, I've got a a good, funny story to share of of when it worked very well. Uh, When I was rolling out the Intel identity system, that was the system that would support the Intel corporate brand. And ultimately, it would support the Intel inside brand. That was a new thing for a company that had always been a business-to-business company. Company in the semiconductor industry. And we were moving from business to business to business to consumer. And so we were rolling these programs out around the world, making sure that everybody had the instructions they needed on how they should treat the trademarks, how they should treat the brand. And it was well before you know, the internet, so we were physically mailing these identity guidelines throughout the world. And we started to just have a lot of pushback from our European uh, colleagues. And they were pushing back and pushing back. And I was like, gosh, I don't understand it. We've sent them everything. I don't understand what the problem is. And you know, we've thought, well, maybe it's the fact that Germany's got a lot of rules around corporate identity and paper usage that are very different from the Americans. And maybe it's a cultural issue. So Craig said, get on an airplane, fly out there and find out what's wrong. And so we're in this meeting and I could tell people were kind of miffed. They were kind of unhappy. And finally, I I pulled out and luckily I brought the hard copies of the guidelines with me because we tried to incorporate all of their input, making sure that we had information in there around recycling and European paper sizes and, you know, just all the things that were important to the Europeans. And they said, well, we've never seen these. You've never sent them to us. And I don't understand why you're here. So I stopped the meeting and I ran downstairs into the basement in Munich, to the uh, to the room, the mail room. And I start opening boxes and I start going through cabinets and lo and behold, guess what I found. I found everything that I've been dutifully sending them and asking them for input, for the last number of months, all in these boxes, lots of boxes, because we had to send things physically. The the internet wasn't working as well as it does today. You couldn't really send attachments. And ultimately what I realized at that very moment is the underlying cause of a dispute may not always be what you think it is. And that was truly the best learning because that physical exercise of opening up boxes, going through the system. And we actually discovered that that the people in Europe had not received a lot of their mail. So they thought the Americans were leaving them out of a lot of decisions, that we didn't think that they were important. We weren't acknowledging uh, their you know, unique point of view. And the reality is their mail room was broken. So I got to help fix that.
0: <laughs> that's that's a very interesting anecdote, right? Like you actually peel the onion and then you get to the root of the problem before you actually figure out what is going on. So maybe it was not the printing and whatever you were trying to tell. So that's a really and- good, interesting thing, actually. So, yeah, and I think it goes to the core principles, even from a product and uh, engineering perspective to always go to the root of the problem to figure out what is the underlying cause instead of just doing patches and patches on top of a broken system. Yep.
1: well and one thing that I I point out in my book is that there are certain things that always happen in a turnaround situation but the number one thing is always human failure and you know what it's not going to be fixed with uh you know with AI it's it's not going to it's not going to solve the problem it it we will always have a human factor. There will always be a human factor of someone not doing something that they were supposed to do, right? There was a guy in a meal room not opening up boxes and distributing them. I don't think he had his job for very long, but the reality is that hubris, uh, people having you know too much pride in, in what they want to have done somebody putting themselves and their own self-interest in in front of the interest of the organization there have been the same human factors throughout thousands of years of history and it doesn't matter how far we get technologically they always exist yeah.
0: Yeah. Good. Uh, in in your turnaround method the first thing which you talk about is obviously the visualizing the future right? Uh, how do you go about understanding what the future entails from the perspective of the different stakeholders in the organization you know obviously you worked in large organizations you worked in multiple places where you got people together for solving the American diet problem so how did you go about trying to understand what what are the perspectives where are they coming from what is what is their point of view Right, we really try to get people to paint a picture. We, it is that simple. We try to get someone
1: to stop and say, don't think about today. If you could visualize, if you could paint your perfect picture of what the future looked like, both from a visual perspective, as well as the way in which people interact with each other, what do you want it to look like? Think five to 10 years down the road, what do you want the world to look like? And we use that to then backtrack to where we are today. And and by doing so, we can go through that visualization of the future and we can break it down around how people work together, how the technology works, what our capabilities are, who we're selling to, how much money we want to make, what geographies we want to be in. And we can begin to say this is where we want to go and this is where we are today. And so what are the steps between today and 10 years down the road? And the reality too is this, you can only paint one picture. And so what you've got to do is determine what's job one. What is the most important thing we can do to survive and thrive? And Intel at its height was really good at this. I think they've kind of lost that and they're trying to get back to it today. But you may remember in the early nineties that Intel job one was semiconductors. That was it, taking over the semiconductor market. We were making up from losing market share to the Japanese. Intel wanted to own the semiconductor market. And it was unbelievable that over pretty much of a five-year period of time that Intel would go and take over basically 73% of the global market because nothing else mattered. We could form partnerships with other people, but we had to always stay focused on what job number one was. And if there were other things that you saw in your perfect future, then go pursue a partnership. And so that's a fundamental part of what I talk about in my book.
0: Yeah. And I think you reiterate the point a lot of times in terms of what's your, go back to the fundamentals, what's your job one, two, and three, and see if whatever you're coming up with a new idea or a partnership doesn't fit into your vision. And if it doesn't, then it's not job one and two and three, and you should not spend energy in that. I think that was a key takeaway for me personally from your book, actually. So, And
1: one of the things I always point out is that there can only be job number one, and two and three are the backup singers. They're the way you get there. And so that is, that is the most important thing to remember is you do three things really well, but two of those three things are always backing up your number one initiative. And then again, if you, if you don't have the capacity, you go out and you find other people whose initiatives line up with yours. And I know we're using Intel, but you know, you're, a lot of your audience is high tech and may remember this. You know, when Intel, IBM, and Microsoft lined up together to go and meet with IT managers around the world and sit down with them and got them as a group to standardize on this connected platform, each of each company had a stake in the platform. Mm-hmm. That's when the world changed, and they sort of flipped the model. and Dell then came into the mix. But the reality is, you want to form those
0: partnerships with people whose interests align with yours. I think you talk that about a lot also in the book where you are uh, talking about in terms of partnerships, look at what their future also and whether they are aligning for a long term and both of you are going to be in it for the long term and the long haul. Right. Absolutely.
1: And we saw that in the food and beverage industry. You may remember that one of the initiatives I talk a lot about is when 16 food and beverage companies came together and made a decision to reduce calories in the marketplace. And prior to making that decision that we would that we would focus on one one very specific data point, they had 10 different things up on the board. But the reality was each of the companies made different types of products and so you couldn't make this take the same action when you were talking about bread or soup or ice cream it always had a fundamentally different element to it. So you can standardize it. And one day in a meeting, after we'd spent months and months and months trying to figure out how we could all commit to 10 things and actually have it work well for everybody that's involved, that someone jumped up and go, you know what, it's all about calories. Because when you take out calories, you remove sugars and fats. When you remove sugars and fats, then you reduce weight. And, And it's that clarity that comes
0: with job one. Thank you. That's that's an interesting anecdote from an another perspective as well, which reinforces job one. Thank you. So, you know, obviously you talk about a lot of successful, you know, turnarounds in, in your book. So can you give me an example of a turnaround which you felt a little bit unsatisfied, an example which was particularly challenging? You know, of course, you know, in terms of the outcome or in retrospect, what you could have done differently and how did it change you personally, actually? We, we learn a lot from both successes and failures. And that's the reason for me, the question behind the question. We do. We absolutely
1: do. I wouldn't say it's a failure. The organization that I'm going to give the example of is succeeding, but it's succeeding in a different way than we anticipated. And in large part, it was because of COVID. I was asked to take over FAIR, which is the largest uh, research and uh, entity focused on food allergies, right? It's it's focused on creating therapies, diagnostics that help people identify whether or not they have a food allergy and then creating a therapy that would treat that allergy. And when I took over the organization, only 17% of the money was going towards research. And so we weren't solving the fundamental problem. We were treating people, we were taking care of people with an allergy, but we weren't actually preventing them from getting it in the first place. So I was asked to completely sort of restructure the entire organization called FAIR, Food Allergy Research and Education. It's the largest research entity in the world focused on this topic. And we did an 83% restructure. And we raised $75 million in 18 months to pay for that completely different research focused Our goal was to have the switch flipped and be 60 to 70% of our activity focused on research. And so we, we set up this large uh, system of a clinical network at 50 major medical institutions around the United States. We set up very specific research targets that would uh, change the outlook of food allergies from a medical perspective in the shortest period of time. Time, our goal was to make the largest number of changes to reduce the number of people impacted by the disease. So, raise $75 million, restructure by 83%. All that happened in the first 18 months. And then, lo and behold, COVID hit. Yep. And, uh, and so, COVID hit, and we kept moving forward with the restructure, we kept moving forward with the research. And um, and we had very, very specific measurable goals. And we were raising money and using that money towards that. Well, two things happened with COVID. It took us, our hot goal had been, about $100 million, $150 million in the first couple of years and first five years. And so, you know, we were still doing well, but raising that $25 million was really, really difficult during COVID, that final 25. And I didn't want to leave the organization until we'd hit $100 million. Secondarily is we couldn't go in and actually do the research, right? It's a hospital setting and nobody was more strict during COVID than hospital settings. And so we had to come up with different ways to do the research. And so we we suffered the delays. And I think think the other element is we lost the board's focus. As everyone during COVID was reacting to their own situation, you know, people, people were dealing with work experiences, but they were also dealing with family and other types of experiences going on. And, and this is a very labor-intensive process, which causes people to to have to be in there physically. We were able to get the first therapy approved by the FDA right before COVID hit. But the problem was this, the therapy required the patient was for peanut allergies, only one therapy, no other therapies had ever been in the marketplace. And it required the patient spend an inordinate amount of time in the doctor's office. So the company that was rolling out this therapy, which was the greatest thing since sliced bread, right? It was gonna change the world. All of a sudden couldn't have the patient in the physical setting, or at least had the patient, which was always a child in there with their parents. And so we we saw many, many delays. I uh, my goal was to get enough money raised to get enough of these initiatives that would change the perspective as dramatically as possible in place before I left. I was always only there for the turnaround, and I wanted to. I had certain goals before I handed it over to the next person, mm-hmm. and so I understand that they've changed. The, uh, after we did the eighty three percent restructure, they've had to restructure again. They've had no choice. They've had different dynamics in the marketplace. Uh, the company that was making the peanut therapy has had a very difficult time. It was bought by Nestle, but it's been a challenging time period to make up the revenue that was lost during that time period. So I know that the current CEO is rethinking that model. And I think the reality is this, change is going to happen at just incredible pace, especially with AI, changes going on in the world, we are going to see change happening at an incredible pace. When we looked at semiconductors, you know there was Moore's law, right? There was that time Mm -hmm. where you knew that you were going to have this exponential rate of growth within your capacity. Same thing with food allergies. We had timed it out that certain things would pivot and basically reduce the size of the number of people impacted. But the reality is the world did change. And so now they're doing another pivot to restructure how they do that research in a way that's very different than what we did. No way to avoid it. No way to have anticipated it. All I could do is hit my goals and make sure I left as much in place to meet the goals, to change those
0: critical metrics before I stepped away. Nice. I think that that's a great thing, right? Like, I think you were clear on where you wanted to go and your job won. So you put it based on that and restructured that. So I think that's a clear bit of it. Thank you. You do,
1: and I think during COVID, when I was at J.P. Morgan's healthcare conference right before COVID, and then I joined some phone calls, people who had been talking 18 months out on medical research were then changing their research plans literally on a couple-month yeah. basis. Mm-hmm. And and that amount of pivoting when you're talking about medical research
0: is very very difficult to do. Yeah. Yeah seriously it was obviously like a big snowball or a truck hit and the whole thing had to be changed and very very fast changes so another thing uh, you know one of the key elements you've described is regarding breaking down the past you know any insights on how you have done it in projects is there any framework you uh, do in order to assess certain activities or assets you should continue or should sunset. You know, It's a lot of things, right? right. You have to start with uh, stakeholders, there's budgets budget and there's uh, organizational politics involved as well, right? But how do you, what is your framework on how do you break down the past and say these things we should not do? You know, I'm very physical about it. I'm a very visual person. And so I'm
1: very physical. And here's what I mean. I used to do for a number of years, I owned a corporate identity company right after I worked at Intel Corporation and Intel had gone through all these changes. I knew that the rest of Silicon Valley would go through similar changes. And so I had a very visual way of showing marketing and showing human resources. It was this physical, tangible thing. I still do that. Uh, I still go for piles. And I know that there's ways you can do it technologically, but it's the way that my brain operates. And so what I will do is I will literally set piles around my office and start looking at things, not necessarily by the way they look, but their characteristics and the ultimate function that they're supposed to provide. And so if there is a thing that is supposed to change your mind about something, that could be an advertisement. It could also be a corporate policy. There are a lot of ways that you change people's minds, Mm -hmm. but looking at things based on their characteristics and then physically having those piles, it allows you to go through and say, what are unique characteristics about the end game? What is this thing trying to do? Not not what function does it sit in? Not that it sits in HR or you know, corporate identity or engineering, but what is it ultimately, what behavior, what is that thing five years from now that it's trying to change and where do we see the world going? And what that does is it allows me to get this physical manifestation as to where i'm going to make those changes and what i always discover always discover is that when you start going through the old boxes or the old files it's very easy to see where a pivot happened that should never have happened right where somebody makes a decision that auditing process and i call it breaking down the past auditing it going back i actually pull up the original legal documents For an entity. What was the entity supposed to do? And then where did it go off course? And sometimes you can actually find the cause of the disease 20 years beforehand. There may have been a decision that was made that started veering the company off of what their original trajectory was. If we go back to my point about everybody should focus on job one and jobs two and three should be your backup singers. They should help job one succeed. (laughs) You can then start seeing where things unraveled. And for me, it's a
0: very visualized visualization process so if I if I rephrase some of the things which you said like so you try to break down all the different silos and then look at all of these things are they still relevant and helping your job one are are they not are they orthogonal to your job one if they're orthogonal or if they still don't go towards the goal then cut them irrespective yeah. of the function irrespective of why it was intended earlier on. And I do
1: spreadsheets Then I like literally, you know, with with corporate identity, because I used to do a lot of corporate identity work where a company would go through multiple mergers, and you'd have these big posters, and you'd see it, I treat it almost the same way. Again, for me, it's a visual process. So I'll do a big spreadsheet, and I'll just start putting things in, you know, what it looks like, what it does. And you can see when you when you force everything into one page, and that was the blessing of having rolled out the first websites in the internet, which is what my job, you know, my company did when you had to put everything visually into this one one interface, it really revealed how totally screwed up stuff was in the background yeah. <laughs> because you... You know, you couldn't shove it through that button if you only had four buttons on the page and and all of a sudden you're looking at stuff and then you're visualizing what it really looks like. And you're like, oh my God, we've got to do some restructuring here. A lot lot ended up getting reorganized well through the internet. And I think AI is about the next time where that's going to happen, where all of a sudden we're leaping over these boundaries that we've set up as humans, as we've set up as managers. And the system's going to find out that actually these things fit together and these things don't need to apply any longer.
0: Thank you. Uh, the other thing which I really liked in the book was your decision tree framework, in terms of, you know, uh, present to the future, you describe your decision tree. And, you know, how do you go about that? Like, uh, I I really like the way you were like, every decision, look at your SNO. And then based on that, uh, you know, figure out your decision tree framework. Can you share some insight sure. the process? Well, for one thing, uh, because
1: my initial uh, training that I received in the corporate world was around corporate identity, what I quickly learned is that there is a a visual element that's a snapshot of business processes, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, again, especially if you think about the internet, you're really only talking about this visualization of all these processes that go on in the background, and, and so my brain still thinks that way. On a decision tree, the goal is to get everything down to one page, right? You just, you just call it all down. Where are you today? Where do you ultimately want to be? And how many things can you support? And the reality is, if we go back to job one, if your decision tree is always, does this support job one or not? And if it doesn't, then it goes down into the no. Yep. Off it goes. And, and if you think about corporate identity or uh, marketing, it's only a visual imagery of a, of a function, right? You have a logo is a visualization of a whole business behind it. It's that, it's that when you get to the consumer can only understand 30 seconds, you're giving a visual 30 second snapshot of an entire business operation. And so you have to be able to say, If job one's over here and that's where we ultimately
0: want to get to, then it's truly just the yes and no process to get there. And, and actually going through that uh, religiously and always asking the question, is it supporting your job one or not? Yeah. Right. And that's where I think Intel went off the rails
1: for a number of years, right? Intel for job one was always semiconductors, 85% of the market Intel owned semiconductors. (laughs) It wasn't about semiconductors. We didn't do it. And then, we started doing all this other stuff. And so yeah. that decision tree really got murky after, um, you know, after a period of time. And I think that Pat is trying to get it all back down to where it was and
0: recognizing that still the core function is semiconductors. Uh, The other thing I loved is uh, the chapter about ending on a high note. Okay. So it's like, I think you touched upon it in your fair example as well, in terms of when do you decide to step aside and continue, even after your turnaround is done, that's a very critical thing, actually. As I was reading your book, I never expected that chapter. So it was, for me personally, it was like, wow, yes, as a change maker, you should know that, okay, am I overstaying my welcome? And, you know, how do you go about that? Any interesting anecdotes on how yeah. did you say that, okay, I'm done here and I should give it up.
1: I learned from my dad. My dad uh, started an organization that uh, ended up growing into billions of dollars and thousands of people. And when he left, he literally left, like he never went back. And I I think that is the most important thing my dad taught me is that if you're an executive, and you leave a job, you leave it, you need to let all those other people do what they're supposed to do. They own it, you don't own it. And nothing's worse, nothing's worse than a founder, Coming back in and mucking around, nothing. You look throughout Silicon Valley history when the founder still keeps their finger in there, they go, oh, "I'm going to go be chairman of the board." Yeah, right. <laughs> and then they keep coming and mucking around and stuff. Doesn't work. And so it was really something. Um, it was. It was. I learned it from my dad. And, uh, and you can end on a high note and decide you want to go after the next big thing. But when you walk out the door, you walk out the door, you can end on a high note and you can make a determination that, you know what, you only wanted to do one turnaround in your life and you really don't like it. So great, celebrate it and then go back into a function that more fits with what you want to do. Maybe you backed into it by accident because you found yourself in the middle of it. You found yourself having to be a hero. And if any, we have any Lord of the Rings fans out there, just think about it. Frodo didn't stay in Middle Earth. He left. He went on the boat. (laughs) He went, he went off with the elves. He never actually wanted to be in that position. Frodo wasn't signing up for another turnaround. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and that's okay. You can, you can celebrate your victory. You can do another one, or you can just make a decision that that is um, what you want to do. But I, I do think for me, it was that true separation that I learned from my dad
0: that was the most important thing. Yeah. I think one more thing which I liked in the chapter, especially is like you're exhausted by the turnaround, you yeah. need time to actually take a deep breath. So, uh, you know, any takeaways for our listeners in terms of how do you kind of recharge yourself between turnarounds? You know, you've been uh, doing a lot of turnarounds, so I'm sure you take breaks and stuff. So how do you, What's what's that you do in terms of recharging yeah. and also figuring out what is your next thing?
1: Um, I, I take a break. I mean, I, I do take a significant break and I do other things. Now, financially, I can afford to do that. In some cases, what I what I would do is I would do just consulting and small projects in between big turnarounds that I ran. And so if you look at my resume, there's always breaks in there. And those are very purposeful breaks. I need to recharge. I need to sit back because I am one of these people. Look, the things I've had to turn around have always been highly complex. You know, again, with FAIR, that we had to do an 83% restructure. And thank God we were moving as fast as we were because we managed to get it all done before COVID. Uh, But when I was uh, with, and that was FAIR, the Food Allergy Research Organization, but when I did the World's FAIR, which is also in the book, I didn't have time. Uh, the president of the United States in July asked me to take over the World's Fair. It was $32 million in debt. I had to raise all this money. I had to pay for the whole thing. I had to get it built, the US presence at a World Expo, and we were opening the doors in six months. So it was hit the ground, raise the money, restructure everything, build the entity, and then we had to talk to 2 million people, right? nonstop visitors were coming in. And I was literally exhausted at the end of that. So each of my situations have been I've always been the Hail Mary pass. And what that means is that I'm the last, you know, a CEO, a president of the United States or someone had to, a billionaire who was an investor had to have the thing work or otherwise they they would have lost a very serious amount of money or they would have lost in the president's case, a key relationship with an uh, ally, which was Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, so I take breaks. And uh, but I know everybody can't afford to do that. And so I think part of it, too, is giving you, know, take a vacation. Don't go from one right into the other. Try to um, if you do too many major turnarounds back to back, it's it's just exhausting. Very few people can do it. You need to have you need to have time off to regenerate, to find yourself again. And then you can put your all into it because a turnaround is all encompassing. Yep. Yep. Thank
0: you. So, uh, any other key takeaways you want to leave for our listeners from the book? Uh, you know, I really loved all the quotes about uh, you know what you talked about your father and stuff in your letter. So, any other key takeaways for our listeners from the book?
1: I do. I mean, we are entering into a time where we could face the greatest exponential change that we have ever seen in government and business, right? AI, AI, blockchain, they all have the potential to radically, radically change the way we do things. In fact, I saw someone, um, the former deputy head of the UN Refugee Relief System at the at the UN put up, after he retired, he was speaking in an event I was at that was before Davos, and he put up slides uh, of the entire infrastructure for the UN refugee relief function, with big X's through the whole thing. And he pointed out how, when the money comes in, it takes 18 months to get to the person um, that needs the money. So it's not never a good time. And how, through you know, again through blockchain, through AI, through other things, they would be able to deliver service immediately and the money immediately into a into a situation that needed help. The world is going to happen, go through exponential change. And so you're going to have to be very, very speedy and use process like you've never used it before in order to always try to make the right decisions. You're constantly using process to anticipate where's the change going to happen. Don't try to hold on to a legacy item. Just don't. Think always ten years down the road. What do you want it to look like? And then run as quickly as you possibly can. And as I tell people, if you can get it behind an ambulance moving down the highway, it might be a political uh, opening that exists. It may be something where uh, there's a big new, uh, a big new invention that happens that allows everybody to move in very quickly. You tag behind that that ambulance until it gets
0: off the highway. Thank you. Yep. So faster turnaround, always be willing to change. And uh, as you said, keep your eye on job one. Make yeah. sure that that's what is aligning to your future. Thank you, Lisa. It has been an engaging discussion, actually. Change management, sharing your insights, and also the book turnaround. Uh, you know, uh, I especially enjoyed all the anecdotes you shared, uh, the large organizations you were part of. So It's been a great thing. And learning from how you also married both the private and the public sector. For me personally, that is uh, very insightful in the book also, right? A person who got trained in the private sector, how you took on a lot of public sector initiatives, which are at a global scale and that adding value. So I think those were really key things. So uh, listeners, do check out the book Turnaround by Lisa Gable. And Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time and talking with our listeners today. It was so much fun seeing you again and talking with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Next time, uh, we will have more book takeaways in our 10X Growth Strategies podcast. Thank you everyone for your time.